and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. When I was a kid, when I'd go into church, um, you would go in there, and, and one of the things that it was called was the house of worship. And there were a number of different things that were involved in worship in that church. The minute you walked in the door, there was holy water, and there was the smell of incense in the air, and there were candles on the altar. And all of these things were all, in some way or another, part of what was considered the worship of God and the service of worship. Um, you know, that building was this kind of gothic-looking cathedral type of thing. Now, if you go into a lot of churches today, they look very different than that. In fact, some of these churches look more like a stadium or an arena than they do a temple and because that's what once upon a time they were and when it comes to worship rather than involving candles and incense and holy water um, it's more of a show it's more of a performance and what is part of the typical service in most churches probably now is the praise and worship part of that service. Whether or not that's praise depends on what they're actually saying in those songs and what the heart behind it is. But what I can tell you is despite the name, that's not worship. No more so than the candles and the holy water and the incense were. None of that's what worship today is. And so much of what is done and called worship is what the Bible just refers to as vain worship. And we'll see and understand this as we get into the Word of God to see just what God says worship requires. We begin in John chapter 4. Like everything else, our only rule for faith and practice is God's Word, the Bible. That's our only rule. And if we're going to rightly do the things that God would have us to do, we have to know His Word on that subject. In John chapter 4, there's this wonderful record. And speaking about Jesus Christ, and it says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That would make it about noon. Been walking all day, he's tired from his trip, and he sits down at the well. Verse 7, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. 
for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This woman is surprised that he would even ask her for a drink. Not that it was surprising for a man in that culture to ask a woman for a drink. Now, there were certain, when it came to what communication and what level of communication with strangers, men and women in that culture, it wasn't like it is here where it's just wide open. But certainly it was not out of the ordinary for a man to ask a woman to help him get a drink of water. But it was unusual for a Judean to ask a Samaritan, a Galilean, any of those people to ask a Samaritan. And the reason why is because of the history of those two people and the animosity that existed there. And that all goes back to the diaspora and the captivity, and we won't get into all the history of that and a bit of it I've shared before. But basically, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be, at best, a mixed breed because of what happened with the repopulating uh, the land during the captivities. And that was just the start of the animosity between the two people. Um, again, long history here. The one thing I will get into, though, is that the Samaritans, during this time when they sort of are returning, the people that had been still left behind, they had moved on and they built their own temple. The temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed with the diaspora. Diaspora. There you go again, diaspora. <laughs> Phil had nothing to do with it. Okay. With the diaspora, the temple had been destroyed. And those in Samaria built their own temple, and they built it in Mount Gerizim, a mountain right there adjacent to their city. That temple was destroyed before we get to this time in history. Again, a lot of political, geographical things happening, geopolitical things happening. But all of that background plays into the understanding of this record. There is, what you need to understand is that these two groups kind of look down on each other, especially the Jews looking down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans kind of returning the favor. And there had been this temple, and that's what the Samaritans worshipped. They had worshipped in that temple, and now when they prayed, when they did their acts of worship, it would be facing that mountain where that temple was, where it had been. Okay. There's other differences too. The Samaritans had their own uh, Pentateuch, their own Torah, um, but again, we won't get into too much of that. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, remember her question was, why are you even talking to me? And he said, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. If you understood who is talking to you, then you would turn around and ask me for not just water, but living water. We'll skip down to verse 19. He goes into this whole other thing here. but 
The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, because he's told her certain things that, you know, there's only, the only way you could know that was from God. And then she goes on. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is, in the, is the place where men ought to worship. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple is. And back then, if you were going to worship, you worshipped in the temple. Or if you were a Samaritan, you worshipped to where once upon a time a temple had been. Verse 22. No, verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Instead, you'll go to every church on every corner, and that's where you're going to do it. No, that's not what he says. Ye worship, ye know not what. You don't even know what you're worshiping. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and that uh, article, ah, uh, is not even in the text. God is spirit. And they that worship him must, not an option, not, you know, if you like doing it this way, do it this way, and if you like to do it another way, do it another way. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And there's a figure of speech, there's actually more than one there, but there's a figure of speech, Hendiatus, where you have two nouns representing one idea, in spirit and in truth. Those two nouns, spirit and truth, represent the one idea, and you can kind of put it together and have it to be either truly spiritual or with spiritual truth. He's telling her that you guys don't even know what you worship. They at that time knew what they were worshiping, but the time was coming when neither in that temple or in the mountain or in any other place, those, that is not the way that worship was going to be done. But rather, it was going to require worshiping by way of spirit. To truly worship, to worship with true worship, true spiritual worship requires spirit. And we'll understand this more as we get into it, but we'll go over to Matthew chapter 15 and look a little bit more first at what it's not. What worship is not and what, what is called vain worship because so much of what has been done and what is being done really falls into the category of not true vital spiritual worship, but, but rather just vain worship. In Matthew 15 and verse 3, This, again, there's a lot of context that we're going to skip over. But, but he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? There's just been you know, these scribes and Pharisees picking on his disciples because they didn't wash, you know, go through this traditional ceremonial washing and you know, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They weren't breaking the law. They were transgressing the tradition. And he said, why do you transgress, transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Verse 7, ye hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In vain they do worship. And why was their worship vain? Because they had elevated tradition above God's word. We can never replace the truth of God's word with the things that man's come up with. You know, I, when, I was a, when I was a kid of 14 and knew nothing, that didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me that so much of what I was told were the most important things weren't things that were at all in the Bible at all, but things that somewhere, somewhere along the line throughout history, man had come up with around it. All of this tradition, whether it's the tradition found in, in you know, the Talmud or it's the tradition found in many churches today, all of that has nothing to do with worship. What worship is is what God says it is, and it's not what man comes up with. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we see something that's not just vain worship, but here, some acts being reproved that were false worship. In Acts chapter 7, verse 40, this is in the middle of Stephen's you know, great speech as he's about to be stoned for it. Verse 40, saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we know not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Malak, and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. The reason why they ever went into captivity, the reason why the diaspora happened, was because of their false worship. They're worshiping other gods. And they made their calf, and you know, they made all of these things. They, you know, if you ever looked into the details of some of these gods, you know, you think it's pretty silly. You know, they're worshiping a calf. They're worshiping. They got a fish god, Dagon, the fish god. They worship the sun. They worship all these different things. You know, and God said, the host of heaven. You know, all of everything they worship. And again, they knew not what they were worshiping. You know, it makes me think of that record of Paul when he goes into Athens. Is it? And he says, you know, I perceive that you know, you're, you're too superstitious and, and some that, that could also be translated too religious. And there he talked about how they were worshiping all these gods. They had there a, a different god for everything they could come up with. 
you know, every possible God, you know, and you may be familiar with, you know, mythology, Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and they have all these different gods. And if you're not familiar with that, then, you know, just go to any Marvel movie and they'll enlighten you. Um, <laughs> and then after having all these statues to these, all these different gods, they had one to the unknown God. And that's where Paul started in talking to them. You know, let me tell you about him. But they would worship all these different gods. Today, most people don't worship Dagon or a calf. Um, and a lot of people think they're not worshiping any gods, but they still are. Because anything that's placed in that place that only God deserves, that's your idol. So it could be the you know, God of science. It could be the God of Mother Earth. It could be you know, whatever God you want it to be. Whatever God you want it to be. But all of that, all of that is false worship and all is condemned. Here's a question. What book of the Bible do you think has the word worship in it more than any other book? Any guesses? Nobody wants to venture a guess. Last time I had a couple of guesses. Somebody actually came close. Um, they got number two. It's the book of Revelation. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's interesting. We won't look at all of these by any means. And I did, I mentioned, I think before we started, that I did this teaching a, a few years back, um, back about four years ago. And in that teaching, I went into all of this in greater detail. So if you want more detail, into, there's a number of different words from the Greek that are translated worship. And at that time, I went through all these different words. It was a much longer teaching. Um, where you can study these out and the different shades of meaning and so forth. We're not getting into that, but we're just going to kind of hit some main points. In the book of Revelation, again, on this subject of false worship, you see not only was it what a big deal it was in the Old Testament and how it caused them to go into captivity, but what's going to happen in the future when it comes to those that would worship something other than the true God. In chapter 19 of the book of Revelation and in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Of course, that's referring to Jesus Christ. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. All of that's referring to events that are going to happen in the future. And in the future, after the gathering together, there's going to be this period of time, and you may have heard of some of these events of the Antichrist, also referred to as the beast and the false prophet, and people are going to worship them. And all of that, all of those people that worship the beast, worship the false prophet, the, the Antichrist, all the people that worshiped something else, all of those are going to have the same fate, and that fate is the lake of fire. So, 
Certainly, nobody wants to end up in that place. Certainly, nobody wants to be in that category of false worship. But I don't think anybody that loves the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be in the category of vain worship either, of something that's not what God is really looking for. So what is it that he's looking for? We're going to look at, again, first starting in the Old Testament, not to get to true worship, but to look at the two aspects that are involved in worship. Two aspects that are important to recognize, and one is the act, and two is the attitude. What is involved in the act of worship, and two, what is the attitude that that act is done with? So, first look at how it happened back in the Old Testament times in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In 1 Chronicles 16, this record happens at the time where David brings the Ark of the Covenant which back to Jerusalem. It wasn't even in Israel. It was stuck in the land with the unbelievers, and David goes and he gets it and brings it to Jerusalem. Verse 1, 1 Chronicles 16. So they brought the Ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that God had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. Skip down to verse 7. Then on that day, David first delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing songs unto him, talk ye of, of all his wondrous works. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Some of you will recognize that psalm. But he first did this on this occasion of when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to, back to Jerusalem. This was a time of great celebration, a time of great thanksgiving, a time of praise unto God. And they praise God with his words, and they praise God with the songs that they sang. And all of that was involved in praising God. And praising God, like we covered a couple of weeks ago, is that heart of, of gratefulness, of gratitude, of thanksgiving, and then speaking about the wonderful works that God did. But it's not just praise, it's praise and worship, and those are not synonyms. Praise and worship are not the same thing. Praise is praise, and worship is worship. And worship, there's praise that's involved in the heart, of, in the attitude of it, but worship is something even more. Look at Psalm 138, verse 2. Did I read verse 29 of that? Yeah. <clears throat> Come before him, worship the Lord. In Psalm 138, verse 2, it's the only place that those two words are put together. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. I find it interesting that the one place that praise and worship is put together, it's for God's word that he magnified above all of his name. His word that tells us what is praise and what it means to praise God and what it is to worship God. 
And in the Old Testament, that worship was done by going to the temple. It was done where they came before the presence of God. And that's what the Ark of the Covenant represented, the presence of God. Before you had the temple, before David had built the temple, from the time that they first came out of Egypt, they had the tabernacle. And that tabernacle contained the Ark of the Covenant. They went there to worship God because that's what represented his presence of where he was in that Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And then the temple was the permanent building, and that's where God's presence was sought. And that's where they came to worship him. And that act of coming to worship him, that did involve many very five senses things. There were the labors, the water going into it. There was a number of different things that were done in there in terms of the act. But the attitude was one of devotion to God, of adoration of God, of recognizing how great God was and honoring him. That's what worship is, to worship something. When we talk about people worshiping the almighty dollar, it's not like, you know, they're doing holy water and they're singing songs and doing all that, right? We're talking about the attitude they have about that, that that's just the greatest, most important thing there is in all the world. That's the attitude of worship, right? That attitude carries over. That attitude should always be the underlying attitude when it comes to worship. It's the act that changes. That the act is no longer going to a temple or a tabernacle or a church building, but rather it's worshiping in spirit and in truth. In spirit because God's dwelling place is within that spirit. It is the spirit of God. It is that spirit of God. And it talks about that and talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, now we are his dwelling place. And, you know, I don't want to step on anybody's toes what's going to be taught in a few days here. But, um, but that's what has changed. Where God now dwells. And therefore, we worship him in spirit and in truth. In Philippians chapter 3, in the New Testament, the word worship, the main Greek word used, I'll just give you this one, not all the others, is proskuneo, proskuneo. And that word means to prostrate one before one that they're worshiping. It's, like, it's used of like a dog at his master's feet. And the act in the Old Testament, many times that's what they would do. They would bow down in worship. They would do that even if it wasn't worshiping God. They would, to show great respect, they would bow before someone. You know, it's kind of where the whole thing of, of bowing before a king comes. And, and in the East, they would do it with that complete kind of like going over. But a lot of the other stuff also <clears throat> follows from that. In Philippians chapter 3, though, it says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in what? The Spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3. 3. 
We worship God in the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh because the flesh has nothing to do now with what is worship. It is all of being done in the spirit. In Acts chapter 2, that's when they first received spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, it says, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were speaking the wonderful works of God. When they spoke in tongues, that was worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says in verse 2, For he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, for no man understandeth, him should not be in there, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. And look at verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. This is what it is to pray with the Spirit or to worship in spirit. It's to speak in tongues. True worship is operating the manifestations of Holy Spirit. You cannot truly worship without it being spirit that's involved. And that requires the operation of the manifestations of spirit. Speaking in tongues is the way that we worship God. When we speak in tongues, we are speaking divine secrets. We are speaking the wonderful works of God. We're praising God. When we speak in tongues, that is both praise and worship to God, but that's the only way that we can worship. You know, it's not just, though, the act. It also has to be done with that attitude of heart. Just as we can choose to pray in the Spirit, or pray with our understanding. When we pray in the Spirit, when you're praying for someone, you still have the understanding in your mind. You're picturing that person you're praying for. So it is when we worship, we do it, that speaking in tongues with that attitude of adoration for the one true God. God bless. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.